Well, good morning again. I can't remember if I already said this, but my name's John. If I didn't say that, and you're a guest, it's, it's great to be worshiping with you. Um, and again, Merry Christmas. Of course, as, uh, as Christians, we know that Christmas, at least in, according to the church calendar, isn't just a day. We celebrate Christmas for a year. Christmas tide is the traditional way of referring to that, the 12 days of Christmas following the, following the day. And in planning to preach uh, these two weeks of, of the Christmas season, I, I've taken on a couple things I've always wanted to do but not really done during Christmas. And one is the genealogy of Jesus at the beginning of Matthew's gospel. That's today. Don't run away, please. <laughs> we'll try to make it good. And then two, um, the Apostle John's little four-verse summary of the meaning of Christmas at the beginning of not the gospel of John but his first epistle of John. In the gospel of John, he says, you know, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. This great statement of Christmas. In the first verses of his uh, first epistle, he explains the meaning of Christmas. So that, we'll, we'll do that next week. So that's where we're going. Um, and, and for you fifth regulars too, uh, just when we're talking about plans, just a little bit about what's going to come in the new year. We're, we're going to be taking on a series that will walk us through the entire gospel of John called a series titled That You May Believe. And I'm excited about that. Um, You know, we have a little transition going on in our Woodland Drive-In campus. So what's preached here will also be preached there just one week later. So the the drive-in will be doing the same series. And if if you've ever looked at a, a book written about a book of the Bible, you know, in the seminary world, those are called commentaries. There's always this introductory section where the author writes about the date of the book or letter of the Bible and the purpose, the author, all this kind of background stuff. And sometimes people have to speculate about the purpose of the book. But gladly in John's gospel, that is not the case at all because he tells us right at the end of uh, chapter 20, John writes, you know, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, but those are not recorded in this book. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So that, that's going to be the whole first part of next year for us. So if, if you've been uh, connecting with somebody, exploring faith in Christ, this would be a great series to invite them to. Uh, we're going to try, everybody preaching in this series is going to try real hard to make this very accessible to people who don't have much background in, in the faith. So that's where we're heading. Uh, but today, the genealogy of Jesus And before that, uh, true confessions, right? If you've read the Bible, who has ever just skimmed through all those names? Just yada, yada, yada. (laughs) Get to the the action. You know, Christmas is about angels and stars and miraculous stuff. I mean, I want want the action. I don't want this blah, what, the names, all these names. Why are they in the Bible? Um, Well, as it turns out, uh, the names are really, really important. There is a lot to be learned about what God is up to in the world and what the gospel is really all about in this crazy list of names. So I'd I'd like us to think about that today. Uh, If you will, lessons from Jesus' family tree. Um, And right at the outset, I do need to acknowledge my indebtedness to uh, pastor and author Tim Keller. He's written a wonderful little book titled Hidden Christmas. So a lot of these thoughts come from there. Next week's sermon and the one after that even. Uh, so if you, if you haven't read that book, it's worth your time. You should get it and read it. Hidden Christmas by Tim Keller. But now, the scripture, before we read, let's pray, shall we? 
Uh, God, as your people, when we come before you and open your word, we uh, confess with your church around the world that we cannot get this on our own. We can't figure it out. Uh, Our reason is not sufficient. We need your revelation. So by your spirit, would you help us? Help us to grasp what you're saying. Help us to receive what your word is stating. Help us to perceive what your spirit is speaking. We want to hear from you, God. Uh, And help me as I try to talk. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So right at the beginning of Matthew's gospel. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife, Solomon the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, Abijah the father of Asa, Asa the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Jehoram, Jehoram the father of Uzziah, Uzziah the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amon, Amon the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abihud, Abihud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Akim, Akim the father of Elihud, Elihud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathan, Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Friends, indeed, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Woo! (laughs) I was eight years old when Star Wars was released. I'm dating myself, I know. I think I was nine when Mr. Heckler, the dad who lived next door, they had three boys and a girl, they were my, my best buddies, the boys were. Mr. Heckler took me and the three boys to see Star Wars. I so remember it. It was, it was amazing. All the hype. And the movie opens with the Star Wars logo right in the center of the big screen. And then the upper left, just a simple line of blue text. Do you remember it? A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. And right at the beginning, you're like, yes, <laughs> this is going to be awesome. And, and, and then there was the crawling text that gives you the whole backstory. You know, it, it, it kind of goes like this, like it's going off into deep space and you read about the evil empire and Princess Leia and the, and the whole bit. But the hook was that phrase, a long time ago 
in a galaxy far, far away. Right from the get-go, you understood that this would be the telling of a tall tale, right? A, a story of fantasy and, and fiction. Hopefully, exciting and interesting, maybe even inspiring and instructive, possibly even true in the, in the sense of maybe metaphor or analogy. I wasn't thinking all this when I was nine, by the way. <laughs> but certainly not true in the sense that it really happened a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. And I'm really sorry if I'm bursting your bubble. It, it didn't happen, you know. There was never an actual Death Star, no lightsabers as cool as those were, no Darth Vader, and the Force isn't a thing. The most important lesson we can take from Jesus' family tree is that this story is not like Star Wars. It, it's not the telling of a tall tale whose only claim to truth is through metaphor or analogy. The genealogy of Jesus anchors the gospel of Jesus in history. And, and Matthew, uh, in his gospel, seems oriented mostly toward you know, helping Jewish readers understand how Jesus is the fulfillment of all the prophecies of the Old Testament of, of Israel. And he, he gets going on that right here from the very beginning, from verse one, number one. He shows how Jesus is descended from Abraham and thus linked back to the, the, the very first promises to, to uh, what would become Israel. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Translated literally, if, if you look at the original language, the two words that start this verse are biblos genesis. Biblos is the Greek word for book, and Genesis, of course, is Genesis, how stuff started. So this is, this is the book, the recording of the beginnings of Jesus. That's, that's what's set out here. It's like Matthew is saying, I'm going to tell you about Jesus, and I'm, I'll start by telling you about his, his beginnings, his, his Genesis. So big lesson from the genealogy. The gospel of Jesus is anchored in history. He emerged from real people who really lived. We can trace his history. We can put uh, most of these people on the timeline of history. We can trace the ancestry of Jesus, at least the human side of it, right? And, and you, you might be in the place where you're, you're asking, okay, that's nice, but why, why does it matter, really? Why, why does it matter if all this stuff about Jesus is, is historical or not? Certainly, people would benefit from reading about Jesus and imitating his example. He was a great moral teacher. We, if we would just all live by the golden rule, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you, which was a Jesus thing, you know, the world would be a better place and, and, and that would be great. So what if it's just a metaphor? It's still good, right? That is a very, very important question. It is by no means a sidebar issue in the conversation of faith. Because this really is where the rubber meets the road with regard to Christianity. And it is the exact point where Christianity departs from every other spiritual belief in the world. All of the big religions in the world, in one way or another, point to a spiritual path we should follow. And the simple summary of the message of religion is that we should do religious stuff to make ourselves more spiritual and thus more presentable to God 
or, or more able to be incorporated into the great force of life, in, which would be the perspective of some more Eastern religions, right? So if the simple summary is, do religious stuff to make yourself more presentable, do you know what that is at the end of the day? That's advice. Advice to do certain things so that your life will be better. More so that you might experience more fulfillment in life, more, more spiritual, you know, have your spiritual silo filled up. Okay. But the gospel is different. The message of Christmas is starkly different than advice. It's news. It's good news. Tim Keller does a great job of pointing this out in his book. See, the word gospel literally means good news. The claim of Christmas is not that Jesus brings us good spiritual advice for how to make our lives better. The claim of Christmas is that something has happened on the timeline of history that needs to be reported. A newsworthy event has occurred. And as it turns out, it's really, really good news. Let's say there's an invading army coming toward a town. What that town needs is military advisors. It needs advice. Someone should explain that the earthworks and trenches should go over there, the marksmen should go up there, and the tanks must go down there. However, if a great king has intercepted and defeated the invading army, what does the town need then? It doesn't need military advisors. It needs messengers. And the Greek word for messengers is angelos, angels. The messengers do not say, here's what you have to do. They say, rather, I bring you glad tidings of great joy. In other words, stop fleeing. Stop building fortifications. Stop trying to save yourselves. The king has saved you. Something has been done, and it changes everything. That's the claim of Christmas. Something has been done, and it changes everything. See, the genealogy of Jesus puts the gospel in the category of news rather than advice. And news invites us to recognize that something has really happened and to consider how we must respond. So lesson one. The genealogy of Jesus anchors the gospel of Jesus in history and distinguishes it from all other spiritual beliefs. Who'd have thought? That wasn't a genealogy, right? It's right there in those names. But the genealogy has a lot more to teach us. Back in Jesus' day, a genealogy would be understood in the same way we understand a resume. You know, in, in our day and time, we put our resumes together and we, we try to get the right education and have enough extracurricular activities if we're on the younger side. Uh, if we're on the older side, we list accomplishments now, right? What you've actually done, not just how, what you think. Because, you know, past behavior is the best predictor of future behavior. So we want to see what you've actually done, that kind of thing. So our, our resumes are all very individualistic because we live in a very individualistic culture. But that wasn't the case in Jesus' day in an Eastern culture that's more of an honor and shame-based culture. See, when you went to get a job back then, the, the question wasn't, have you been to the right school or have you accomplished the right things? The question was, tell us about your family and you would present your genealogy because the person hiring you wanted to know if they were hiring a person who would add to their level of honor in the community or who might take away from that honor and possibly bring shame upon them. So your, 
your family tree, your resume mattered big time. And, and just like we kind of tweak our resumes to make ourselves look good, like we leave off the bad stuff because we want to you know, put our best foot forward and present ourselves in the best possible light. So back then, people tweaked their genealogies. They'd kind of erase the you know, crazy Uncle Larry that they didn't want anybody to know about. King Herod did this. He, he evidently uh, erased a whole bunch of people from his public genealogy because he didn't want to be associated with those people which is ironic because he was the crazy Uncle Larry, right? But that's another story. Um, and and this, this is where we get to the stunning part of the genealogy of Jesus. Not only has it not been tinkered with to make Jesus look better, uh, it, it seemingly, on purpose, highlights some of the most sordid, immoral, dark horrifically terrible stories from his family's past. Not only does it highlight the, the immoral outsiders of his family line, it, it highlights all sorts of outsiders. Uh, showing, I think, how all are welcome in God's family and how God can turn even our brokenness and bad behavior toward a working out of his good purpose. That's the great lesson of Genesis 50. Right, Joseph to his brothers, what you intended for evil, God used for good. That doesn't mean that God planned the evil to make good come out of it. It's just that God is so great, he can take even evil and make good come out of it. In Jesus' genealogy, there are five women. That never happened. Women did not make genealogies back then just because of all the cultural stuff. Right? In that culture, women had very little standing. Jesus' genealogy has five women. Three of those women were Gentiles. I mean, just being women, they were kind of gender outsiders in that patriarchal culture. Three of the women were Gentiles, so they were racial outsiders in that culture, which, which made that distinction in a very sharp way. Rahab was a prostitute. King David, an adulterer and murderer, don't miss that part about King David. You know, the great, the great irony of this, a man after God's own heart and yet an adulterer and a murderer. David was the father of Solomon whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Uh, of course, if you know the Bible story, that was Bathsheba. But notice how Matthew doesn't mention her name. Uh, Bathsheba was the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Uriah the Hittite, one of David's mighty men, had been his colleague and loyal supporter for years and years and years. And as the story goes, in the spring of the year, when all the other kings were out making war, David said, I'm just going to send my guys. I'm going to stay home. And in that season, he, his, his eye landed upon Bathsheba. And, of course, we know the rest of that story. Bathsheba becomes pregnant to cover up his own sin. David calls Uriah home from the field of war. But Uriah is such a man of honor and loyalty that he refuses to sleep in his own home when his comrades are on the field of war. So David, again to cover up his own crime, sends orders to Uriah's superior and says, hey, when the, when the fighting is thick and heavy, pull back from Uriah and let him get cut down. And this guy, his, his loyal friend for years and years and years, David betrayed him to cover up his crime of adultery. And let's not miss the, the fact that the name Uriah 
is included in the genealogy of Jesus. Let's not miss that. Even though biologically he's not part of that. I take that to mean that loyalty and honor matter and that God remembers. See Bathsheba and Uriah, victims of David's crime. Horrible, horrible crime. Yet there's David, right, in the line too, in all his dysfunction and brokenness. Amazingly, just like you and me. David was a great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus. And then the point is that even moral outsiders are part of Jesus' family tree. So the quick summary of the genealogy is that if you look at this from a cultural perspective, it's that against all cultural norms of the day, the genealogy of Jesus includes women, foreigners, prostitutes, adulterers, and schemers. This resume has not been tinkered with one bit. And if your genealogy was your resume, Jesus was not getting a job anytime soon. But that's exactly the point. Exactly the point. The credentials of Christ turn the value systems of the world upside down. (laughs) We see it throughout the New Testament. This is the backwards economy of Jesus where the last are first and the first are last. Where the rich are poor and the poor are rich. It's all backwards. See, Jesus' family tree shows us that all people are welcome in God's family. Your spiritual credentials don't matter a bit because all of us, each and every one, from prostitute to king, are equally lost and broken and in need of God's saving grace. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't even matter if you've killed someone. That's the lesson from David's story, right? If you repent, change your thinking, and believe, trust in Jesus... God's grace will cover you, cleanse you of your sin, and unite you with your Lord. That's the good news. The gospel says there's, there's nobody too low who's maybe too dirty or not worth God's attention and salvation. It also says that there's no one too high and lofty and accomplished who is not in need of that very same salvation. Every single human being is in the same boat. See, in the gospel of Jesus, there is no us and them. It's just us and God. And we all need God's help. See, in an honor and shame culture, the the greatest fear was that somebody else's shame might rub off on you. Thus, all the rules and laws, all all that stuff, all this distancing yourself uh, from, from people who brought shame to, to the family. The horrors of honor killings that still exist to this day in, in those cultures. But the great news of the gospel is that, is that not only can someone else's uncleanness not rub off on you, it's that God's perfect righteousness can rub off on us. Jesus turns the whole thing completely around and the apostle Paul summarizes it for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes first to the Jew then to the Gentile for in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed a righteousness that is by faith from first to last this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe therefore There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you've repented and believed, turned to Christ, 
been cleansed of all your wrongdoing and been united with Jesus. Lesson two, the genealogy of Jesus shows us that he is not ashamed of us and wants all people to come home to him. Amazing lesson from the genealogy. And the third lesson, at least for today's purposes, uh, the, the structure of the genealogy is very intentional. It's highlighted in that last verse, verse 17. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile uh, to the Messiah. Now, in ancient genealogies, uh, p- people could collapse, uh, collapse them make, to kind of make a summary version or to make a point. So, so don't misunderstand this. The claim that there were three sets of 14 generations is not necessarily a claim to a specific timeline. Though this one is closer than some others in the Bible. Right? Luke's genealogy of Jesus uh, starts back at Adam. So his, if you look at that, it has to be much more compressed. And what I mean by compressed is if, if you see in a biblical genealogy, Bob begat Larry uh, who begat Steve. It doesn't mean that Bob is grandpa and Larry is dad and Steve is the son. You know what I mean? It's, it can be that one is the great, great, great grandfather of this one. You can leave out a few in there. So there's a lot of that that happens in the Bible. So these aren't necessarily crisp claims to a timeline. They're just listing a genealogy to kind of make a point. So what does that mean for today about how this genealogy of Jesus is shared with us? It means that in the giving of Jesus' family tree, God wants us to catch something very significant. There are three sets of 14 or six sets of seven, if you do the division, right? That makes Jesus the seventh seven in this series. Uh, Why is that important? In the Bible, the number seven is significant for multiple reasons, primarily because on the seventh day, God rested from his work in the, in the order of creation. And that, that rest finds its way into all sorts of different commands in the Bible. In the Mosaic Law, uh, farmers were to allow their land to lay fallow every seventh year to give it rest and let, and let it be replenished. On the last year of the seventh set of seven years, that was the year of Jubilee. Right? Every 49 years, there was to be a year of Jubilee that the Israelites would celebrate, where all slaves would be freed, all debts forgiven, and everyone would rest from their labor and their burdens. See, the genealogy of Jesus tells us that this rest, this forever rest, will come to us in Jesus, that he is the rest. See, Jesus is the one who will free every slave, forgive every debt, and give rest to all who are weary and burdened. He is the permanent year of Jubilee come in person in a way that we can know personally and interact with. And remember, the whole genealogy points back to Abraham. I mean, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, thus linking Jesus, God's permanent rest, back to the promises that God made to Abraham. The point here is that God will keep his promises. Even though it might feel like he's taking his time, He will definitely keep his promises, even in dark days when it feels like God is a million miles away. You might be in one of those seasons right now. I don't know. I know I've experienced them. We all experience them. Uh, Think of the, in the the timeline of God's people, the, 
the 400-year period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, a, a time of stark silence, no prophets, right? God's people had to feel like God had turned off the intercom and left the building. Like, where are you? Is there anybody that just sounded like you were praying up into the air? Nothing. I know you feel like that sometimes. Maybe most of the time. That's a common experience for a human being. The Psalms are full of lament, cries out to God, where are you? Are you listening? Are you there? Where have you gone? And we all feel that way. But the genealogy of Jesus assures us that even if it be centuries, even if it be millennia, God keeps his promises. Jesus came at the perfect time, God's perfect time, which rarely, if ever, feels like the perfect time to us. Here's how the Apostle Paul put it in Galatians. But when the time, when the set time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman born under the law. When the set time had fully come, when the time was perfect, Jesus came in person. God's timing is perfect and God keeps his promises. Lesson three, the genealogy of Jesus shows us that God keeps his promises in his perfect timing. So all that from a boring genealogy. As you read the names, the next time you're reading through the Gospel of Matthew, hold these things in your heart. Those names anchor what we believe in the timeline of history. It really happened. It really happened. Not just Christmas, but the resurrection too. He's alive right now. This is not just a hopeful spiritual thought. Jesus is alive in his body right now. He knows you. He loves you. He cares about you. If you've been wandering, he wants you back. So don't wait another day. The only way we come home to God is by God's grace. It's not by our pedigree. Certainly the genealogy teaches us that. It's not by our accomplishments. It's not by the religious checklists that we so faithfully tick off. It is only by God's grace. And that grace has moved into our neighborhood. That's Christmas. That grace came to us in person, in Jesus, that first Christmas long ago. And far from being spiritual advice for self-improvement, Christmas is news that something happened that matters to everyone everywhere. You get started with Jesus, not by praying the right prayer, not by doing religious stuff, but simply by changing your thinking. That's what the Bible word for repent literally means. Change your thinking. And believing, meaning placing your trust in, the news report about what has happened in history. That Jesus has come. That the Lord of history has been born into our world. It's very, very good news. And it's for everybody. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.